Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Before we go there, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the day you've given us. Thank you for this afternoon where we could reflect on what you've done um, in our lives over the past week and as we prepare to start this new week. Uh, going back to work, uh, I do pray that you would energize us. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Lord, I do pray that we would, as we look at your word, see it with accuracy, see what the words of scripture say, care about what they say, and see the reality that's there and see how it should impact our lives. And Lord, that we would follow what we hear tonight, what we see, what we understand by faith. Lord, that we put it into, our pra- into practice, put it into our lives by faith. And Lord, that is the only way to be commended before you by putting our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ and moving forward in obedience by faith. So I do pray that you give us grace tonight. Please bless us and be gracious to us. Please cause your face to shine upon us and help us to be a blessing to those that we interact with this week. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Let's read our text, Hebrews 11, and start at verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, And Isaac, your descendants, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which also he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Lots of neat things in this text. When I was a little boy and into my teenage years, I did not like to read. I liked to play sports. I liked to go outside. I liked to do everything but read a book. I was okay If someone read a book to me, I was okay. If my brother, who read a lot, if he told me stories about what he was reading, I would like that. But I did not like to actually pick up the book. Besides, I did did read the Bible, by God's grace. But if it was not the Bible, I just simply did not pick it up. But every now and then, there was one type of book that would catch my attention. And I'd actually, actually get to the whole thing. And that type of book was Christian biography. Something about Christian biography just caught my attention, and once I started reading it, I had to see the rest of the story. We spend all of our time with each other. What I mean is, people spend time with other people, right? That's what we do, it's just how humans are. And one qualification you have to have to spend time with other people is that you have to be alive. Hopefully that's not news to anybody in the room. But the problem with being alive, the problem with living here on this earth, is that there's always tension. There's always problems. There's always a level of uncertainty on what people are going to do, what direction they're going to go, what they're thinking, what's going to happen, and so on. There's always that tension going on as we interact with each other. You will never meet a Christian who has arrived. You'll never meet that person. And if they have arrived... That means you've met them at their funeral. So why do I love Christian biographies? And why, I'm sure, why do you love Christian biographies? 
say, well, I've never thought about it before. But if you think about it, I think this is the reason. I love Christian biographies because they let you see the work of the Lord and a given person's life from beginning all the way to the end. You see the whole picture. Whereas whenever we interact with each other, there's that tension. And when we see things going on in the news, you see what churches are doing, there's that tension. We don't know what's going to happen. There's that level of uncertainty. But when you read the stories of men and women of faith of the past, you see their lives from beginning to end. You see God perfecting what he started in their lives. So why do we like hearing about Spurgeon? Because he was faithful all the way to the end of his ministry. Why do we like hearing about Calvin or Adoniram Judson or Ann Judson or Elizabeth Elliot or Lloyd-Jones or William Tyndall? Why do we like reading about their stories? Because they were faithful to the end. We just read a... uh, biography of Jim Elliot to the boys, and he lived a very difficult life, and he died a very difficult death. But when we came away from that book, guess what? We were encouraged. We were excited, even though all the difficulties were there in his life. And why were we excited? Because at the end of his life, he was faithful to the Lord. There was no scandal, no major stumbling block. He was faithful to the Lord all the way to his very last breath. So as we see those stories, it gives us hope for our own lives. There were men and women with flesh and bones, sin nature, just like you and I have. And that's why I think Hebrews chapter 11 is probably one of the most popular chapters in all the Bible. So the title for my message tonight is Practical, you already see it, Practical Eschatology. Where in the world would that come from? Well, it's a little bit piggybacking on what Mike said this morning, and that is doctrine should lead to devotion. Whenever we see theology in the Bible, we see truth in the Bible, it should trickle down into the way we live our lives. And eschatology, studying the end times, having a view to the end times, should be no different. It should be practical. It should make a real difference in our lives. And as we see the men and women of faith, In this chapter, in particular, as we get to this section of Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 17 through 22, from Abraham and his family, that section we're in right now, we see that their view of the end times, their view about what God was going to do one day, it shaped the way they lived their lives. It had a direct influence on the way they did things. It had a direct application to the way they had, the way they ended their lives, the way that they came to the end of their lives. It was a practical eschatology. Now, every sermon you hear on on Hebrews 11, when you're in this chapter, is ultimately going to have the same main point, overarching point. And that is every Christian should trust Christ until the very end. That's really the main point when you get to the end of this chapter. As you see all the different stories, you trust Christ until the very end. This chapter leaves us with no excuses. It, It doesn't say, well... Well, if you have a really difficult situation, then you're exempt from this life of faith. No, everyone is in this together. You have this phrase, by faith or in faith, show up 19 times. And the point is, following Christ to the very end, trusting him to the very end, can be done. It has happened before. And as we see what's happened and what God's done in their lives, we can be encouraged today to follow Christ to the very end by faith. And that's the point. So tonight, as we wrap up our study of Abraham and his family, before we move on to Moses in the next verses, before we wrap up the section on Abraham, which went from 8 to through 22, we have four more lessons to learn from this family, four more lessons about faith and living with a view to 
the end and God's promises in the end times. And that first lesson we're going to see is sacrifice by faith. Sacrifice by faith. And look at verse 17. And at the same time, turn over to Genesis chapter 22. And have your finger in both spots or have two windows open on your phone. Okay? If you can do that. I'm not sure if you can. But this is a summary of what happened in Genesis 22. Famous story of God commanding Abraham to do what? In Genesis 22. To offer up Isaac, his son, on the altar as a sacrifice. A real sacrifice with a real knife, real fire, real rope, a real sacrifice. Look at verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, and Isaac, your descendants, shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And I want to show you four keys to understanding how significant this sacrifice was. Four keys. We're going to look at the remarkableness of it. Yeah, remarkableness is a word. If you add ness to it, it becomes a noun. Remarkableness, resolve, rationale, and then the result. So let's look at those. First one, the remarkableness of this sacrifice. Think about how remarkable, think about how significant this sacrifice was. Just think about it. Think about the background. Think about the context of what was going on. Think about what type of sacrifice it was. So think about that first. What kind of sacrifice was, that, was going on here? What kind of sacrifice was this? Was it a self-sacrifice? It wasn't a self-sacrifice. In some ways, that's much easier, isn't it? Self-sacrifice. Actually, I'm right now, if the Lord took me right now, however violent it might be, I'm ready to go right now. I'm perfectly ready. I'd be happy to go. I'd be ready for that self-sacrifice. The sooner the better. The more I live, the more I realize I don't belong here. But any father worth being called a father, he would die for his children. In a heartbeat. Would there be any debate? Would there be any emotional struggle? Would there, it would just be, boom, automatic. He would die. He would sacrifice himself for his sons. Same goes with my boys. I have three boys. I would die for them in a heartbeat. No problem. No discussion. I would do it. And I think it's what Paul was saying in Philippians 1, this struggle that he's getting at. He said, I'd rather depart and be with Christ, because that's a lot better. But then you see the other side. Where did the struggle come in? He said, but to remain on is necessary for your sakes. Self-sacrifice is going to be easier. But this sacrifice is something different. This is talking about sacrificing, letting go, of something that you hold most dear, something that is the closest to your heart, and letting that go. You live on, but that thing goes. This is not self-sacrifice. This is entrusting into God's hands what is most valuable to you. So that's the kind of sacrifice. Think about how high the stakes were. Think about how high the cost of the sacrifice was. Three things that could tell us about that. One is the power of a father's love. And we, if you're a father in the room, you can understand this without, without, without hesitating. The power of father's love. And you see, if you look at Genesis 22, if you're already there, verse 2, here's what God told Abraham. Abraham. He said, Take now your son, and look at all these descriptions of Isaac, your only son, Ishmael had been gone at this point, whom you love, Isaac. That's what God was telling him to do. 
take him and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. That was the command. So you have this meeting with the power of a father's love. There had to have been some kind of difficulty that went on in his heart. This is, these were high stakes. Also, the second thing he tells us about the cost is the posterity of God's people. Listen to what Genesis says. God was very specific about who he was establishing the covenant with. Don't turn there, but Genesis 17, we read it last week as well. But God was already very specific about who this covenant was going to be with. Abraham originally counter-offered. He said, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. Very specific. And you shall call his name Isaac. I'm even naming him for you. And I will establish my covenant with him, not Ishmael, for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. So if the son of the promise is God, and you have the whole posterity of the God's people crumbling. And it says, too, that in, back in chapter 11 of Hebrews, Abraham was offering up his only begotten son, using the same term that's used for Jesus in John 3.16. And the verse 18 is even more specific, piggybacking on the promises of Genesis, verse 18 of chapter 11. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. Very specific. This is the posterity of God's people that's at stake. A high cost. The third thing that's at stake is the plan of redemption, God's overarching plan for salvation for God's people. That's what's at stake here. Isaac is the person that God chose to bring the descendants of God's people through. And without him, will you have Christ? There is no Christ without Isaac, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ. This is where Jesus comes from. The plan of redemption is at stake. That's how remarkable the sacrifice was. Next, notice the resolve of this sacrifice, Abraham's resolve to do this. Think about Abraham's response to the command now. Genesis 22, it doesn't tell us that Abraham laughed. Had he done that before? He'd laughed before. It doesn't tell us that he argued with God. It doesn't tell us that he offered an alternative to God. None of those things. He just gets up and goes. That's it. He was resolved to obey Abraham had such a radical resolve to obey that some ancient Jewish sources actually believe that he did kill Isaac. They actually believe he actually did kill him, and then he was resurrected. That's how resolved he was whenever the ancient Jewish sources are reading into this. But verse 17 doesn't say that he attempted to offer Isaac. Hebrews 11 doesn't say that he came close to offering Isaac. What does Hebrews 11 say? It says, by faith, what did Abraham do? He offered, and he was offering. It speaks of it as a done deal. In Abraham's heart, he was fully resolved to carry this out. He was going to do it. He was going to pull it off. That's the resolve that Abraham had. Notice number three, the rationale that he had. What was he thinking at this point? Look at verse 19. Verse 19 clearly spells out Abraham's rationale. It clearly spells out what he was going through his mind. It tells us what was on his mind as he carried out God's command. Look at verse 19. It says, He considered, he reasoned, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. What was Abraham's solution to this? I'm going to do this, but I know God's truthful. He'll raise them from the dead if he needs to. That was his rationale. Genesis 22, as I've studied it in the past, has always struck me as a silent chapter. Think about it. A silent chapter. 
There's not much discourse. The characters in that story aren't doing a whole lot of talking to each other. But there's a lot of action. So look back there at chapter 22 of Genesis. Look at verse 3. Notice some of Abraham's actions. After God told him, go, take, offer. Verse 3. He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took two his, two, his two young men. He split the wood. He went to the place. Look at verse 4. More action. He raised his eyes. He saw the place of the sacrifice. Look at verse 6. He took the wood. He laid it on Isaac. They walked. It's all silence. Verse 9. He built the altar. He arranged the wood. He tied up his son. He laid him on the altar. He stretched out his hand. He took the knife. See all that action? All that action that Abraham's doing? Now think about this. The author of Hebrews has just told us what Abraham was actually thinking. The author of Hebrews has just told us what was on Abraham's mind during all this silence. Now, has the author of Hebrews done good exegesis? Has he just read something in there that should not be there? I think he's done good exegesis. He's done good Bible study to reach this conclusion. And through the power of the Spirit. I took a highlighter and I highlighted all the words of Abraham in Genesis 22. Look back there and look at the words. Not many words from Abraham. Verse 1, verse 7, verse 11. There are three here I am's. Three here I am statements. Here I am, my son. Or the Lord says to him, and Abraham says, here I am. That's it. Now look at these key statements. Look at verse 5, Genesis 22, 5. He tells his helpers who went with him this. He said, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Biggest statement of Abraham in this whole chapter. In verse 8, a similar type of confidence. He tells this to Isaac. He said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Those are Abraham's words. So is the author of Hebrews right when he says, Abraham was even considering that if need be, God would raise him from the dead. God was going to keep his promise. So is Abraham being rational? Was he being reasonable? We said a few weeks ago that faith is a reasoned response to revelation. Now, is Abraham being unreasonable? Is he being irrational? Is he just taking a leap into the dark and he has no idea what's going to happen? He's not being irrational at all, is he? Why? Because he's responding to revelation. He is putting together what God has told him, and he knows that what God has told him is not going to be a lie. It will come to pass. He says, we will worship and we will return to you. Last week I mentioned that we often, with faith, we overcomplicate it. We make it something overly complicated, while the Bible has it as something simple. At this point in Abraham's life, he had learned the right answer to the question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Abraham, at that point, learned the answer. And he didn't have to think twice about it. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Abraham knew that the fulfillment of God's promises hung on Isaac, and he was absolutely convinced that God was going to keep it. He had a Godward perspective on life, a Godward perspective on his trials, a Godward perspective on everything at this point. He was trusting God for the future. He had a very practical eschatology. His view of what God told him would happen in the end times affected what he did right then and there. So here's an application. We need to start thinking this way, don't we? 
we need to start thinking more about the future, more about what God is promising us. When we, as we, we always think about what's happening right here, right now, right today. So easy application this week, and when in your prayers, when you have your prayer list or in your Bible studies, whenever you pray, have at least one prayer request that's tied to a long-term promise that God has made, something that God has said about what he's going to do in the future, about what he's going to do in the new heavens and the new earth, about the salvation of souls, tie a request that's going on to one of those promises and make it legitimate, but start thinking that way. Start thinking about the future, having confidence that what God says is going to come to pass. So let's look at number four. After the rationale, there is a result. Here's a result. In verse 19 as well. It says, from which, I think it's better to translate that as therefore, he also received him back as a type. Or in Greek, a parabole, where we get the word parable. Okay. Now, anytime you find the word type or symbol in the Bible, talked about some, this with some, one of you this week, every time you find these words types or symbols in the Bible, you're going to also find at the same time a group of Bible scholars who really disagree with each other and have all kinds of arguments and write tons of books about it. So there, I'm just going to really briefly, there's three basic views about what this means, that he received Isaac back as a type. And I'm bringing them up because right now in this very room, you are both holding different Bible translations, and one of them clearly has one view, and another one clearly has another view, okay? And we'll see what we were talking about here as we go. One group thinks that since Isaac was practically a goner at this point, Abraham was so resolved to sacrifice him, he was practically dead for all intents and purposes at this point, when a substitute was provided, it was figuratively as if he had come back from the dead. So when they say this word parable here, it means figuratively speaking, he came back from the dead. Okay? And you'll see that in the ESV. That view does make sense to me. It makes perfect sense. It's consistent. But my problem with it is that it doesn't do justice to the word parabole, also used earlier in the book of Hebrews to be used as a type, something that points ahead to a future or a greater reality. We saw that with the tabernacle earlier in our study. So there's another view that says Isaac is indeed a type. He is indeed something that points to a greater reality, and that greater reality is the resurrection of believers. That's another view. Um, and that makes perfect sense. But then here's the problem. People draw a hard line, and they say, nope, there's another view. It says it is a type. It points to a greater reality, and that greater reality is Christ. Now, I tend to take the third view, but here's why I would say we can't make too hard of a line between the two, because is there a future resurrection of believers without the resurrection of Christ? There isn't. So those hopes, those truths, those realities are bound up together. And I think they're bound up here in this, too, because as we see what happened with Isaac, as he points us to Christ and what he would do one day, because all the similarities, he's the only begotten, and the sacrifice and the willingness to lay down his life for other people, I think... It has to point to Christ. It has to be a pointer to Christ. There's too many parallels to ignore that. And I think sometimes you can let the slow pace of studying Hebrews 11 make you forget about the main character of the book, of the whole, of the whole book of Hebrews. And who is that? It's Christ. He's the main character. So as Abraham, as Abraham received Isaac back, I believe Isaac was a pointer to what Christ would do one day. And that's where we get our hope because we know that we'll be resurrected as well. And that's another reason why Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. And he saw it. 
And he was glad in John chapter 8. So let's back up, take a, big, take a step back and see the big idea of what's happening in verses 17 through 19. This sacrifice, from God's perspective, well, what was it from God's perspective? What was this sacrifice, this command that God gave to Abraham? What was it from God's perspective? It was a test. It says, when he tested Abraham, he offered. It was a test for Abraham's faith. Second Chronicles 16 says, for the eyes of the Lord... Move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. When the Bible says that the Lord is testing someone, I'll make a note here, it doesn't mean there's a lapse in God's sovereignty. It doesn't mean there's something that, oh, I need to, there's some information down here and it's going on in this person's life. I don't know about it, so I need to go down there and find out what's going on. That's not what's going on. It's not a lapse in his sovereignty. The Lord puts things in terms that we can readily understand. The Lord works, works with us in time, space, and history. It's what God does. So when he tests us, he tests us to unveil what's going on in our hearts. And we end up ourselves learning a great deal about what's going on in our own hearts. He was testing Abraham. And as Abraham is tested, we learn things about faith from Abraham's life. As his heart is unveiled, as he passed the test in this case. So what's the difference between Abraham trusting God as he sacrificed the son of promise... This sacrifice with the, the highest stakes, what's the difference between that and you stepping out on 301 in front of a Mack truck tonight? What's the difference? Is there any difference? Please say there's a difference. <laughs> there's a big difference, isn't there? What is it? One is faith. One is a reasoned response to revelation. What's the other one? Foolish presumption. Presuming on God's grace. Doing something foolish that he has not told you to do. Satan would like to confuse us with this, wouldn't he? He did the same thing to Jesus. Jesus, fortunately, saw it coming. The Son of God saw Satan's device clearly before it even happened. Matthew 4, Jesus said, or Satan said to Jesus, and you know the story, he said, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, he said, I, quoting scripture, I have scriptural support for this. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, what? On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So this is not a call for foolishness. This is a call for whatever God has told you to do, however great the sacrifice. And that's the point. You follow it. You go forth in obedience. You go forth in faith. Sacrifice by faith. Now we turn to a lesson about faith from the son of the promise himself, a lesson about Isaac. So number two, blessing by faith, not by sight. And if I said the pun was not intended, I'd be lying. And you'll see verse 20, blessing by faith, not by sight. Look at verse 20. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. I think there's a lot of evidence in the Old Testament Context that tells us there's a lot of unbelief happening in the same exact scenario. Lots of unbelief. When you think about the story of Jacob deceiving his father, when you think about that whole scenario of him dressing up like his brother and, and getting, the, getting the blessing instead of Esau, what are some words, what's the first word that comes to your mind? Think about it. I know that the words that should not come to your mind are, when you hear that story, endearing, comforting. Inspiring, heroic, moving. 
the first word that popped into my head as I thought about that story again was convoluted. Maybe you can do better than that. I don't know. Who in this story handled the situation the right way? Was there any character in the story who handled anything the right way? Did Esau? No. He had sold his birthright already because he was really hungry. He held a grudge against Jacob, and then he planned to kill him. Did Esau handle it the right way? Mm-mm. What about their mother, Rebecca? What about the godly mother, Rebecca? Did she handle it the right way? You know who had the whole plan for the dressing up and the, this whole situation? Whose brainchild was it? Rebecca's. She simply gave the instructions. What about Jacob? Was he the innocent bystander who just had a deceitful mom and he just, well, I don't really know what she's telling me to do, but I'm just going to do what she says because she's my mom. Was he innocent? No, he wasn't exempt either. He's the one who actually carried out the plan. So we have a very happy family at this point, right? So we know about their unbelief. We know about their actions and their bad decisions. But what about Isaac? The question to think about. Was Isaac blameless in this story? Did he make the right choices? I believe that Isaac knew full well that the blessing should have gone to Jacob. Isaac was instrumental in, the pray, in praying for Rebekah to conceive. He was instrumental in the process. And I think he let favoritism get in the way. Because God had already made the promise very clear to Rebekah. And you can just listen to it in Genesis 25, verse 23. The Lord said to her, to Rebekah, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And here's the key phrase. And the older shall serve the younger. That was a promise. God had made it very clear already that Jacob should be the one getting the blessing. But what was Isaac intent on doing because of his favoritism? He was still intent on giving Esau the blessing. Was he acting in belief at this point? That's why this whole story, whenever you read over it, the first word that comes to my mind is convoluted. So if everyone in the story is convoluted, how can the author of Hebrews say that Isaac did this by faith? That is the big question you have to answer, isn't it? How could the Hebrews accurately say that that was so? And it is so, we need to figure out how. And if we're going to apply this verse, we need to answer that question. I forgot to put it up on the board, but, but Calvin put it this way. He said, the blessing of Isaac was an introduction and to the possession of the land. And keep in mind, this whole context, the land is such a big deal, which God had promised him in his posterity. And yet he had, listen to this, Isaac had nothing in that land but the right of burial. Then strange seemed these high titles, whenever he blessed, let people serve thee, and tribes bow down to thee. For what dominion could he have given who himself was hardly a free man? If you think about it from the standpoint of Isaac, what Isaac actually had, if you think about it from the viewpoint of what Isaac actually had in his possession, what kind of position was he, in, was he in to offer blessing to his sons about a great posterity, about people serving him, about having the land? What kind of position was a man with no land in to give a blessing for people to have land? It would be like promising my son Joel ownership of all of Lutz, even though I don't even own a house there. Or here, I'll tell you a true story. Before Philip was born, uh, Savannah and I were looking to move out of our apartment, move into a bigger place. And we were looking on Craigslist. Warning, right? <laughs> we're looking on Craigslist. We found a really nice house in a great neighborhood with great rent, a great, co- great price. We filled out the application. We were ready to go look at the house. 
we'd emailed this guy back and forth, and uh, he said, okay, well, uh, I'm doing some mission work in Africa, and my wife has cancer, so you can go drive by the house and see the outside, and then here's my uh, code. You can wire the $1,000 uh, security deposit to my lawyer in Alaska. True story. Did we do it? No, we didn't do it. We didn't do it. Actually, at the same time, another couple got scammed, almost got scammed by the same guy. But it was a real house. It was in a real place. But this guy did not own it. Crazy as it sounds, this is a situation that Isaac was in as he blessed Jacob. He was blessing him with something that he did not have in his possession at that point. What did Isaac have in his possession? One word. Promise. He had the promise from a faithful God, and he knew that that faithful God was going to fulfill that promise. So how could he bless Jacob by faith? He was counting on God to fulfill his promise. He was counting on God to keep his word. That's how he did it by faith. In the midst of all the convolution, all the problems, it was still an act that Isaac did by faith because he was trusting in the promises of God. And look at the back of verse 20. There's a key to this verse. It was even regarding things to come. Future things. You could literally translate it by faith. Even concerning things to come, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau. The same goes for us. All the promises that were made to Isaac, made to Abraham, made to Jacob, all those promises are even more clear today as we have the New Testament. And as we see the finished work of Christ 2,000 years ago, clearly spelled out, clearly laid out for us, we have these promises made sure for us. We have the finished work of Christ. We have the Holy Spirit given to us as a pledge. We have every reason to be confident as we look toward the future. Blessing by faith, not by sight. Number three, blessing and worship by faith. Blessing and worship by faith, verse 21. Here we move on to the faith of Jacob. So I'm not sure where you are. I've I've been probably doing a really bad job making you turn back and forth. I'm already twisted, but you should be back in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. It says, By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. What does it mean when it says that Jacob worshipped leaning on the top of his staff? If you're preaching this tonight, what would you say? I'm going to tell you what leaning on the top of his staff means. What what, what answer would you give to that? Now, I did read someone who I respect. He had a lot to say about it that I think maybe he should not have said about it. Um, Some some things that sounded nice, but not from this verse. So Jacob was a wrestler. I wrestled with what this means. And here's my interpretation. Are you ready? Are you ready? It means he was old. That's what it means. He was old. This is a posture of an old man leaning on the top of his staff. And in particular, he was about to die. The verse says it. It says, as he was dying. Genesis 48 says, Jacob said, I'm about to die. Very clear. Very obvious. I've never seen, though, the Bible waste any words. I've never seen the book of Hebrews in particular waste any words either. So why put these words in here? 
I believe they show us what Jacob was doing at the end of his life. After all the problems he had been through, after those episodes of unbelief that he went through, after the deception, all these things, but what was he doing at the end of his life? It tells us. It tells us how Jacob spent the last hours of his life. He spent those hours blessing and worshiping by faith. This is good news. And I need to clarify what the text means by blessing and worship. And you can read the story back in Genesis, but we don't have time for for that tonight. But when Jacob blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, he was doing what Abraham did. He was doing what Isaac did. And what was that? Again, what is going on in this text? What is the driving force that they're looking forward to? God's promise, the land. And he's just passing on God's promises to the next generation. He is blessing them in that way, passing on what God had told them and carrying it on to the next people, carrying it on to his posterity. He was blessing them in that way. And as for worship, it says he was worshiping on the top of his staff. At the end of his life, what was Jacob thinking about? It says it in the book of Genesis. As he's blessing Ephraim and Manasseh, he was thinking about the God who had been his shepherd his whole life, the God who had taken care of him, the God who had been faithful to him, the God that he could rely on, the God that his grandsons could rely on. That's what Jacob was thinking about in the last hours of his life, worshiping the one true God. He was reflecting on God's sovereignty, reflecting on God's providence throughout his whole life, blessing and worship by faith. And number four, we'll close with this in verse 22, instructions by faith. And here we close with the faith of Joseph. And as we close with Joseph tonight, we really finish an overview of all the book of Genesis. Isn't that kind of cool? From Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 through 22, it takes us all the way from Genesis 1 through Genesis 50. That's pretty neat, isn't it? And then whenever we get next week to the story of uh, Moses, it's going to take us to the book of Exodus and just take us throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And it's going to get much more abbreviated, but it's a an overview, a survey of what's going on in God's promises to his people in the Old Testament. So look at verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Turn over to Genesis 50, verse 25. That's where the story ends. For the patriarchs. Genesis 50, verse 25. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear. This is what Hebrews 11, this verse in Hebrews 11 is based on. He made them swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. Now what? Okay, so we have leaning on top of a staff. Now we got orders about bones. Why, why are these words here now? I think we'll see why. When you get to the book of Exodus, where is Joseph? He's dead and gone, right? And what about Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that really liked him, the Pharaoh that put him in charge, the Pharaoh that gave him uh, jurisdiction over all the famine relief efforts? Where's that Pharaoh? He's dead and gone too. That's why you get the significant statement in Exodus 1, verse 8. It says, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Important statement because was there anyone at this point to make the Egyptian ruler kindly disposed toward the Israelites? No one left. No one left who was friendly toward the Israelites. So what happened? Slavery, mistreatment, abuse. Things are looking very bad for the Israelites when you get to the book of Exodus. 
So how could Joseph, years and years before, how could he have been so confident that the people would actually go into the promised land? And here you see how this is something he did by faith. So confident that he could say, God's going to take care of you. That's what he tells him. He says, God's going to take care of you. And you better not leave my bones here. When I'm dead and gone, you better take my bones where they belong. You better take them to my land, the land that God promised to us and to our posterity. You better take me to the land of promise and bury me there. So how can he make such a bold claim? How can he give such a bold order saying, you're going, there's going to be an exodus and you're going to take my bones somewhere else? How did he do it? You guessed it, by faith. That's how he did it. His confidence was based on the promise. And if you're still in Genesis 50, look back up at verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land. And here's the key words, which he promised on oath. All the way back to Genesis 15. He promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. It is a guarantee connecting the dots. God said that we are going to get this land. Right now we're in Egypt. Therefore, we won't be here one day. We're going to be in the land. And whenever you do go there, whenever it is, you bring my bones. He did it by faith. He looked ahead to things to come. He looked ahead to the future, to something he knew God was going to do. And he spoke accordingly. He acted accordingly. He lived and died in that simple faith. So how practical is your eschatology? Does it affect your trust? Does it affect your decisions? Does it affect your goals? Does it affect your desires? Does it affect your view on the evil world that we're living in? Does it affect your conversations? Does it affect your evangelism? Does it affect anything that's going on in your lives? Hopefully, it affects everything. God's promises about what he's going to accomplish in the end should affect everything we do in this life. It should give us confidence to put our trust in Christ until the very end. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you, and we love the promises that you've made. Lord, we thank you that you allow us to share in those promises. Lord, we were strangers. We had uh, nothing to do with the Christ. We didn't want him. But Lord, you have saved us. You brought us out of the domain of darkness. You delivered us into the kingdom of the beloved Son. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray that we would live with a view to the end. Lord, I pray that our view of what you said you were going to do in the end, Lord, would give us hope today and that it would directly impact the way we live our lives, the decisions we make, and the hope that we have. I pray, Lord, that we be men and women and children here of faith. And I do pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.